welcome to Wesley Union, a bi-weekly podcast from Studio Wesley that highlights the voices of different campus ministers and leaders in the United Methodist Church. Today we'll be hearing from Heather Pankos, co-director at Gator Wesley in Gainesville, Florida. Welcome to Gator Wesley. My name is Heather. If I have not met you before, I'm one of the co-directors here along with Joel, who you met earlier. Um, And I just want to say welcome and that I'm thankful to be with you guys tonight in worship. Well, I know that this is a really crazy time of the semester, and so I'm just thankful that you chose to be here tonight in worship with us, because I think that tonight's message is an incredibly important one. Um, it's, It's a difficult one, if I'm being honest, for me to preach about, but it's important because I think as a society, as a culture, as the church, and as individuals, we mess this one up most of the time. And if you've been with us at all for the past few weeks, we've been working through this series called Equally Loved, um, and it has to do with the way in which we love one another. And tonight, we're going to be talking about loving our enemies. Um, And if you were here last week, I mentioned that I was pretty anxious about what tonight was going to look like. Um, because I really wasn't sure what I was going to say. And so I want you to know that I do have something to say. Um, I did come up with something. We'll see how it it lands. But um, I'm thankful that you're here and thankful to be with you. Um, Just to catch you up, in case you haven't been here, like I said, we've been um, doing a sermon series called Equally Loved. And it's based off of a TED Talk called The Three Lessons of Revolutionary Love. If you haven't seen it, please just go home tonight. It's like 20 minutes. It's so worth it. I posted it in our current students' Facebook group this morning, so you can find it there, or you literally can just Google search Three Lessons of Revolutionary Love, and you'll find it, and it's a really wonderful TED Talk. And the speaker, her name is Valerie. She's a civil rights activist and a lawyer. She makes this beautiful argument that there are three types of love, or three directions of love is how she talks about it. Love of self, love of others, and love of your opponent, or love of your enemy. And when I watched this video for the first time, I was floored. It really shook me. It inspired me. It made me cry, which is typical. Um, But it it allowed me to kind of hear through her words, God's truth, I felt. Um, And as Christians, I think it's important that we recognize that before we even talk about love of self, we have to come to grips with the fact that that begins and ends with God's love for us, right? Right? We can never fully love ourselves until we've accepted and recognized in our lives that sacrificial love that God has for us. It has to start there. We have to begin by recognizing that and accepting it before we are able to love ourselves. And we have to do the hard work of getting healthy, getting healthy and recognizing the image of God within us in order to love ourselves through our brokenness, through our mess ups, through our mistakes. If we can stay grounded in the fact that we are image bearers, that we contain within us the presence of our creator, then we can love ourselves. And in order to love others, we have to love ourselves first, I believe. And that was the argument that Valerie made. It's not easy to do this, right? This is hard, hard work. And last week I said, we have to do hard things and that we can do hard things. And so tonight we're gonna even dive further into the hard stuff. And I want to say this because I was thinking about it this week when we talk about this idea of being image bearers or holding the divine within us. This isn't a uniquely Christian idea. Like we don't hold the, like the, the um, award for coming up with this idea. In fact, how many of you guys have ever taken a yoga class before? Raise your hand. A lot of you, a lot of the room. Maybe you've taken it here. Maybe you've taken one on campus or in a yoga studio. What does the yoga instructor say at the end of the class? 
Namaste, namaste. This is a Hindu phrase. It has kind of loose translations, but it means to, for the teacher to say this is for them to say, the divine in me honors and sees and recognizes the divine in you, right? So this isn't just a a Christian idea. Lots of religions and cultures um, believe and find peace in this idea that we carry within us the divine. And so when we recognize that, then we can see it in other people, right? People that we know, people that we don't know. And last week I challenged you to begin this process of loving your neighbor and loving others through this recognition that they are divine image bearers. And that when we do that, then we can begin to wonder about them, right? So if you were here last week, I challenged you, I hope, to stop and wonder about people. People that you don't know at all, or maybe people that you think you know so well that you've already got them figured out and you stop wondering about them because you're like, oh, no, I know what to expect from that person or I know what that person's gonna give me if I say this or I know what my roommate's gonna do when I come home tomorrow and I left my dishes in the sink. Like I've already figured them out and we stop wondering, right? And we have assumptions. And so I challenged you last week to drop those assumptions and to get to know someone, to move in close enough to a person in relationship that you can ask questions and get to know them. And when you do this, the hope is that your heart's changed. And when your heart's changed, then your behavior changes, right? And the last thing that I really wanted us to touch on last week is this idea that our neighbor isn't some like big picture idea of this group of others, but is the person right here, right in front of us. Whoever that person may be, whether that's your family member or your roommate or a person on the bus or a person that you come into contact with on campus tomorrow, your neighbor is the person right in front of you. And so tonight we're gonna transition a little bit and talk about what it means to love our enemy. And like I said before, this is a hard one for me. I really had to challenge myself to be vulnerable with you all and hopefully push you all to be vulnerable with yourselves and really think about the difficulty of loving somebody that has hurt you or that doesn't like you. And so I wanna start tonight by praying together for all of us as we continue on this journey. So let's pray together. God of love and God of light. We only have the strength to love ourselves and love others because you first loved us. So as we sit here tonight in this community, God, I ask that you would help us sense that love, that you would help open our hearts and our minds to all that you might have for us this evening. In your name we pray, amen. So I wanna begin by jumping into scripture and it's the scripture that's probably most often used when one is preaching a sermon on loving your enemies. This is a scripture that you are likely all pretty familiar with. Um, It is uh, from Matthew chapter five, verses 43 and 48. And I have this kind of, uh, this image in my mind of Jesus as he's talking to the group that's gathered and he shares this piece with them of it kind of being like he's just dropping a bomb on them. Like they don't wanna hear it. They don't really wanna be pushed in this way. Um, and they're not super thrilled to hear it. And so I wanna read this with you and kind of imagine that in your mind, if you would. So it begins in verse 43 and Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For God makes God's sun shine on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So when you begin this section of scripture, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long section of teaching from Jesus. And when you begin, it says that uh, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up to the mountain, thus the Sermon on the Mount, and his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak. But when the Sermon on the Mount ends, it says this. It says, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teachings. So it's a little confusing to me when I think about who he's speaking here to. Is it, is it just his disciples? Were there crowds? Did like the crowd grow as he taught? Were the crowds like down on the valley and he was up on the mountain, they could hear him? I don't really know. But what I do know is at this point in Jesus's ministry, things were happening. He was growing in popularity. People were very interested in what he had to say, what he was doing, even the stuff that was maybe more controversial. Right before this section of scripture and right after it, you find Jesus healing, doing lots of healings. Lots of people were sick coming to Jesus and he was healing them. So you can imagine there was a lot of intrigue, right? And kind of questions about who this guy was, what he was doing, how he was able to heal. And sometimes he would say things that were a little controversial. And he would use this phrase, and he used it several times in the Sermon on the Mount that I particularly appreciate, um, because it was kind of a, I think, a more subtle way of saying, disregard everything else you've heard and listen to what I have to say. And instead, he would say something like this, you have heard it said that, and then he would tell you whatever it is that you've probably heard said. And then, but I tell you, and then he would tell you what he really wanted you to hear, whether it was an additional piece or maybe a different viewpoint. And there's some debate as to why he does that, right? Is he, is he asking the listeners to kind of refute the Old Testament law? Like in this particular instance, he was referring to Leviticus 19.18. So is he asking them to kind of refute it and realize that he's saying something different and something new that he wants to challenge the people to? Or some say that he was really pointing to the idea that he, Jesus, was actually the fulfillment of the law. That his life and his example was how we were going to know how to live, not the Hebrew scriptures. And we see over and over again in Jesus's life where he actually does this. He teaches us through his example, how to love and forgive. Even at the very end, right? Even at his death, he was calling out to God to forgive those that had put him there. We see him forgive those that deny him. We see him forgive those that betray him. We can watch Jesus's life and see the fulfillment of what he promised. And when I do this and I begin to read and study Jesus and what he did, that's when I get really overwhelmed. And that's when it's a little humbling to stand up here and talk to you about what it means to love your enemies because I don't know that I could do that. I don't know if, that I have it in me to live by that commandment. And so this week I was reading a sermon. I was you know, preparing for this. I was reading a sermon by um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called Love Your Enemies. Figured that was a good place to start as I was preparing for my sermon about loving your enemies. And I was so thankful because he preached a sermon and I felt he was speaking my heart, speaking my frustration. So I wanna share it to you with you tonight. He says this, he's talking about Matthew 5. He preached on the same scripture. Certainly these are great words, he says, words lifted to cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many people have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Many would go as far as to say that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof, and I love this part, that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came all the way down to earth. 
right? Can you just imagine if you've ever heard any of MLK's preaching, just him saying this in this booming voice, right? Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for our enemies. Then he goes on to say, now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you. He realized that it was painfully hard, pressingly hard, but he wasn't playing. And we cannot dismiss this passage as just another example of hyperbole, just a sort of exaggeration to get the point across. This is a basic philosophy of all that we hear coming from the lips of Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't playing, because he was serious. We have the Christian and moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live by this command. So when I listened to that this week, it gave me some like, I guess some like sympathy or I felt like, you know, when they say misery loves company, like I felt like if Martin Luther King Jr. was standing here with me, he'd be like, yeah, I get it. I don't know how to do that either. Like, I don't know if I could do that either. And so it felt, it gave me some confidence, I guess, or maybe just some like support from the beyond that um, I don't have to know. I just have to wrestle with it. And so tonight I want to ask you and, and what he did in the rest of his sermon is to ask his his congregation, how do we love our enemies? How do we live out this truly, truly difficult commandment? In the video that we watched, Valerie says that we love our enemies by tending their wounds. We love our enemies by tending their wounds. And I wanna pause for just a second because in the video when Valerie said this, she also paused and she said, if that idea sends your anxiety through the roof, if the idea of reaching out and loving someone that has hurt you makes you feel like you're gonna vomit, then maybe it's not time for you to do that yet. Maybe it's time for you to focus on the love of self part, on the recognition of God's love for you and how you can care for and love yourself. And when you're ready, you can take that next step. And here's the thing, because boundaries, knowing when you're ready, knowing when you're able to do this work is good and important. Boundaries are valuable. And there's a great book. I feel like I say lots of great books up here. And I don't know if any of you ever read any of them. Tell me if you do sometime, I'd love to know. I'll keep saying them, but there's a great book called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. And he says this in his book. He says, Proverbs 22.3 says that the prudest man sees the evil and hides himself. Sometimes physically removing yourself from a situation will help maintain boundaries. You can do this to replenish yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Sometimes we need to say, not right now. Sometimes we're just not ready. In the video, Valerie told this incredible story of her uncle and she contacting the person who had murdered a family member of theirs and offering this person forgiveness and love. But she also stopped to tell us it took her 15 years to get to that point where she was able to do that. So it doesn't have to be right now, right in this moment. For some of us, we need to take care of ourselves first. But when I listened to her story about this phone call that she made to this man who was still in prison, 
I again had that feeling of being overwhelmed. Like I feel when I read the story of Jesus telling us to forgive our enemies, I feel like there's just no way it seems impossible for me to do this. But then I remember her words, to love your enemies means to tend to their wounds. I think, man, maybe I could do that. Tending their wounds, that doesn't seem as daunting as forgiveness. Tending their wounds seems like maybe it's manageable, but Then I was like, wait, what is tending their wounds? What does that even mean? I don't know if that is possible. I don't think it's healing their wounds. I don't think that's my job. I think God has to do that along with the work of the person. So I spent some time this week trying to figure out what this word tend means. In fact, I asked some of you, um, if you were around this week, I might've asked you, what do you think the word tend means? I know I asked Annie and Brandon, I was like, what do you, what do you think of when, what do you tend? And Annie, maybe you said tending, you tend a garden. Brandon said, you tend a, a fire. I was like, okay, yeah, those kind of make sense. So then I went to the dictionary and I looked it up and there's a lot of definitions for the word tend, by the way, in case you ever wondered. Um, and the one that stuck out to me was to give one's attention to. To tend is to give one's attention to, which makes sense when you think about tending a garden or tending a fire. So to love our enemies, we have to give attention to their wounds. And as I reread this scripture with that in mind, it occurred to me that Jesus was telling his disciples, telling the crowds how to tend to the wounds of their enemies. And I think it begins with a simple acknowledgement, a simple acknowledgement that the person who hurt us, the person that we struggle with or are scared of might also be hurt. You ever heard that expression, hurt people, hurt people? If we can begin with a simple acknowledgement and let it become part of our narrative about that person that they might also be hurt, it can completely change the way we view that person. But it goes back to what we talked about last week. In order to do that, we have to stop and wonder about them. We have to take the time and that is hard work to do. Because when someone's hurt us, we don't want to wonder about them. We want to shut them out. We want to stay as far away as possible. But to wonder about their woundedness helps us because when we do that, we can begin to experience empathy for them, right? And when we have empathy, then we can begin to do what Jesus gave us as kind of the first clear direction. After he told us to love our neighbors, Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you. And when we're wondering about their woundedness and we begin to think about how they might've been hurt by someone else, why they might be so angry, so fearful, so helpless, then we can begin to pray for them and for us. And when we pray, our hearts are changed. When we pray, science has shown us that our brains literally are affected by the act of prayer. So when we pray for someone, it can jumpstart our ability to love them. If you're a leader in college ministry, chances are you're always looking for new information and resources to help you and your team grow and stay ahead of the curve. One resource we at Studio Wesley recommend to assist you in this endeavor is the Collegiate Ministries podcast by Wesley's Revival and the 4D Collegiate Ministry Initiative, which highlights issues and topics relating to the work of campus ministry in 2020 through the voices of students, campus ministers, and other leaders. 
The Collegiate Ministries podcast is available at collegiateministries.com slash podcast and wherever podcasts are streamed. I think beyond that, we also have to acknowledge something else. We have to acknowledge that God loves that person also, right? It says in the scripture that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is an important part of the whole loving your enemies thing because even if we're not there yet, if we can't love them, to acknowledge and to admit that God does, that no one is unredeemable in God's eyes, that no one is out of God's reach is a big important step to tending their wounds. And the final thing I hear in this scripture that I wanna point out to you is this idea of practicing perfect love, practicing perfect love. In the final line of this section of scripture, Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. Tyler, do you know how to be perfect? I do not know how to be perfect. What is Jesus saying? Like be perfect? How how are we supposed to do that? Today I was talking to Joel. I'm like, this part really messes me up because I don't know how to be perfect. So I spent some time this week trying to figure this out. And I want to, you know, Joel at the beginning of the sermon, he said, we don't ever stand up here and try to tell you what to think. We want you to think. We want to encourage you to think. And so this is something, what I'm going to say to you right now, you're going to still have to go home and think about it. Trust me, I'm not going to make it make all the sense in the world to you. But I did find some commentary that I want to share with you about this scripture, about this idea of being perfect. And it says this, it says, it is written, sorry, it is within this context that Jesus speaks of perfection. Disciples must be perfect in their love, which means that they are to love not only those who love them, but also love those who hate them and persecute them, right? That's what the scripture says, love everybody. When disciples do this, they share the perfection of God's love for God is perfect and that God actively shows love towards all people doing good to both the righteous and the wicked. So that kind of summarizes the scripture. But then this author, this commentary goes on to say this, which helped me when I read it. This is the Christian perfection of which John Wesley spoke. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, was big on perfection. He called it a perfection of love. Wesley was right when he declared that humanly speaking, such perfection is impossible. So you're off the hook, Tyler, Okay. Um, but Wesley also was in line with the thinking of, his, of the gospel when he argued that nothing is impossible with God and that God graciously gives to God's people the power to fulfill this command. Let me read that last line over again. God graciously gives to God's people the power to fulfill this command, the power to love your enemy. And there's a lot of kind of trains of thought and theologies on perfection. I was talking with Joel today and he shared with me this class that he took this summer. The the professor kind of described it in two ways. He said, if you think about this theology of sanctification as like a moment in time, like when you choose to love, when you choose to forgive, when you choose to be selfless in, in the way that God would call you to be, that in that moment, right then, bam, you are sanctified, Right? Now, don't worry about it. You'll lose that sanctification in just a minute because you'll screw up like in a second. But right in that moment, through God's power and presence in, in you, you are sanctified. There's another kind of train of thought that talks about sanctification as less of a moment and more of a trajectory, right? So if you start here at birth and you're moving towards perfection, that's, 
That's good. That's what you want, right? And that grace is what carries us there. Grace is what gets us there. So this part is tricky. This part of being perfect is tricky. And I think that as Christians, we're called to wrestle with it. Um, And it's why I said at the beginning that I think we're called to practice perfect love, to practice it. We're gonna get it wrong sometimes. We're gonna get it right sometimes. And to keep practicing it, to keep letting the divine in us, the presence of the Holy Spirit empower us Like it said, because God will give God's people the power to fulfill this commandment. Because when we get it right, when we do it and God works through us and gives us that power, our lives will be transformed. The person who has hurt us, their lives can be transformed. In the MLK sermon that I mentioned earlier, um, he kind of wrapped up his thoughts with these few statements and I wanna share them with you. He says first, hate cannot drive out hate. Someone hates us and hurts us and we respond to them with hate and hurt, nothing will change. Hate cannot drive out hate. He also says that hate scars the soul. So when you choose to match the hate of someone else with hate from your own heart, it is scarring your soul. And then he says this, love is the only force capable of transforming a heart. And this is where I kind of want to wrap it up tonight. Because when I think about this, and probably for some of you, when you think about loving your enemy, it can be really scary, really daunting, really overwhelming, really hard. And so when we think about Jesus and we think about Jesus's life, um, I remember this verse and I wanted to share it with you tonight. It's from 1 John 4, 18. And it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I wanna show you this picture. This is hanging on Joel's wall. Were we able to get the picture? We were. I love this picture. Joel has showed it before. It's a, if you can't see, there's a monster under the bed and the child is handing the monster a sandwich. (laughs) When I think about this idea that perfect love the love of God working within us to transform our hearts and the hearts of our enemy allows us the ability to give the thing and the person that scares us the most what they need, right? When we strive to love and tend to the wounds of our enemies, it's scary, but we do scary things. We do hard things (laughs) because we know that we're called to. And we know that when we do this, our lives and the lives of others will be changed forever. So I wanna encourage you right now, tonight, to think about a person, a person in your life who's hurt you, a person who you would consider your opponent or your enemy. And I want you to wonder about them. I want you to make a commitment this week to wonder about them, to ask yourself the question, what are their wounds? Who hurt them? And then begin to pray. Pray for them, pray for you, and ask God to just begin to give you a heart of love and forgiveness. And when you're ready, when you're ready, you'll know when you're ready, offer them that forgiveness, even if they don't ask for it. Because here's the thing, you guys, they may never ask for it, right? They may never ask for it. And that is hard to think about, but it's true. 
This is another quote that I read in the book Boundaries. And when I read this, it floored me. <laughs> A lot of things have floored me this week. It says this, the Bible is clear about two principles. One, we always need to forgive. But two, we don't always receive or achieve reconciliation. Forgiveness is something that we do in our hearts. We release someone from a debt that they owe us. We write off the person's debt and they no longer owe us anything. We no longer condemn them. They are clean. Only one party is needed for forgiveness. Me. Only one party is needed for forgiveness. Me. The person who owes me a debt does not have to ask for my forgiveness. It is a work of grace in my heart. And this is something that I have come to know in my life personally that I've had to struggle with. I have a family member who hurt me deeply years ago and I just wanted to be so angry for so long. And after God worked in my heart and transformed me and I was ready, I wanted to forgive them. But I wanted them to come to me and say, Heather, I'm so sorry for all the things that I've done to you. Will you please forgive me? And I was ready. I was gonna be like, yes, I'm such a great person. They never came. They never asked. They never sat me down and, and gave me that speech. This person is in recovery. And that's one of the steps of recovery. Did you guys know that? To make amends with people that you've hurt. So I was like, oh, it's gonna happen because this person's in recovery and they have to go through the steps and I'm one of the persons that they've hurt. So I know they're gonna come to me and ask for my forgiveness. Mm -mm. But then I realized I was ready. I was ready to forgive them. What was I waiting for? Like I was holding on to this anger. I was holding on to this hurt in my heart and I was ready. And when I was able to do that, I found freedom that I didn't even know was possible. Valerie says at the end of her video, love is labor. And she uses a real uh, life image of, of birthing her child. And as someone who's birthed two kids, I can tell you that labor is not easy. It's scary, it's hard, but the reward is the most unbelievable thing that you can possibly imagine. And this work of loving ourselves, loving our neighbor, loving our enemy is really hard. For me, this idea of loving our, my enemy is so hard for you the hard stuff might be the idea of loving yourself. You might be like, I can totally love my enemy, but I'm not really sure about me, right? It's hard work, but the freedom, the peace we can feel when we let go and we allow God's love to invade our lives and help us to love ourselves and others well is worth it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Wesley Union. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to extend a special thanks to today's speaker, as well as our production team, Troy Argon Buchanan, Sarah Taylor, and Derek Scott III. My name is Allison Corwin, and thank you for listening to Wesley Union, a Studio Wesley offering powered by Campus to City Wesley. 